Well, Pastor Nicole, we're glad you're here this morning. So um, if, uh, if you haven't already met Pastor Nicole, I, I really, as we started to process this theme and Patty and I were talking, uh, hers was the first name that came to my head that uh, to come up and to either speak to us or be interviewed or us to walk through uh, this topic. Um, I had the opportunity to sit on a evangelism and church growth committee in the Wesleyan Church, and uh, Nicole and her husband Nate were one of the the people that came up through the line saying, hey, we, we love the Wesleyans. We're doing a church plant. We'd love to be a part of what you guys are doing. And of course, it took a very short period of time before we were like, well, we would love for you to be a part of it as we got to know what they're doing. And, uh, and so this has been a kind of a, a perfect fit for us to have a Pastor Nicole. Now, my first question for you is, remember the very first time I met you, you the first thing your husband said was, you are a killer cook. And I'm wondering now in a year and a half, how come I've never received like anything from you to eat? I'm sorry. We'll, fi- we'll fix that. Okay. I just I wanted to go. I telling him to stop telling people I can cook because you build them up. And when they come to your house, they're like, this is horrible. She can't cook that well. No, I don't believe that. So. I don't believe that. I just wanted some witnesses and, and help on my behalf. So, hey, would you start off? Would you just kind of tell us, tell us the narrative of your life? Yes. Well, before I do any of that, I want to say to you that I love you already. The fact that you showed up for this type of wonderful um, interview and you're not going to hear your pastor preach? First of all... <laughs> hey, hey, hey. I heard it over here first. It started over there. <laughs> would, would you really give him a hand for doing this? And his That's wife. Right. And so <clears throat> I would appreciate as many smiles as possible because I'm super nervous. Though I have done this. I'm always nervous when I'm doing anything on behalf of God. So please give me any smiles, but thank you for showing up to this, and uh, I pray that God will speak to all of us. So to start off by telling us, what, what is the narrative of your life? Go blue! <laughs> oh. All right! So all the Ohio State fans just turned me off, and I'm sorry. I am, uh, was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, and I was raised in Ypsilanti, Michigan, which is a little bit away from Ann Arbor, Michigan, where there is U of M, all right, and um, was raised by my mom and my dad, but they were both divorced. Uh, my mother uh, decided at 30 years old that she was going to go to college, and with her preteen daughter, God bless her. And she went to Eastern Michigan University and um, became a social worker. I always tell the story about her because I'm very proud of her doing that. And then went and got her master's degree. So my mother was a social worker. My dad was, uh, is a musician, actually. He won a Grammy and uh, a record producer. So that's always an interesting fact I tell people at the office meetings when they say, what's something interesting about you? And uh, so I grew up around music, and I grew up around church um, all of my life. My dad played for several churches, and uh, my mom was a, a CME. She went to church for Christmas, Mother's Day, and Easter. And I went with her and, and enjoyed that. So when I got tired of going to church, I just made sure on Sundays I was with my mom. And uh, grew up uh, in Michigan till about... Um, 
18, and I went away to college at Wilberforce University. Um, and I've, one day you'll hear my testimony about that. Um, it was a real blessing. And uh, then you heard all of those other things that she said about me. But um, I grew up as an only child with my mom. And there are four of us um, with my, my dad. And I grew up really in both households. You know, I've been uh, on Wilberforce's campus oh, for really? right there in, near Xenia, right? Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Definitely, Sorry. if you know about Xenia. Yeah, yeah. John Deere Town. Yes. So. Well, uh, I wonder, growing up, when were you first aware of the issue of race? So there was never a time where, as a child, and I define that till about 12, that there was an epiphany moment or a um, catalyst to a time where it says, okay, you are an African-American. It was something that I just grew up with. I just knew. It was, um, you were different. And uh, from most of the majority of persons in America. And it didn't really impact me at all uh, because my family were African-Americans. My babysitter was African-American. I went to a black church. Um, It was just something that I knew. It was just something in the household. No one sat you down and said, you're an African-American. It was just it was just something that we knew. Um, it just was a part of who I was. Yeah, and what would you say was the first time, growing up, where you might have collided with differences? Yeah. So I'm going to give you a brief two times because I think that they're important. What started happening around the age of 12, and um, and I I in no way speak for every African American. I know I look like an expert. <laughs> but um, but I think I can speak a little bit in general about some of the same. I, I first started realizing that uh, I was different in what might be considered a negative way once the males in my family and around me hit 10. So African-American males, when they start hitting 10, they, are, they become... A, a, ch- a child, but a, a, a youth, okay? For girls, it probably happens around 12. So around 10, I started hearing um, my mother, my father, my aunts, my grandmother start saying to my brother, my uncles, my um, male cousins that they had to er- act a certain way as an African-American male. And I started learning the difference of my context based on them. So, for example, when you go into the store, don't put your hands in your pocket. Somebody might think you're stealing. Um, When you come across authority figures, this is the way you need to act. I grew up pretty much in a middle-class environment, and so it was taught to... um, you know, how he, he dressed, my brother, was, it was really harped on how he looked when 
he went out in public. And so I started having my identity coming from that, saying, well, if they're saying that to him, then what am I? Um, so oddly enough, my identity as a black person and that it was a not just the color of my skin, but a social status, um, a status in life started coming from my interaction with the males in my family. Then when I was about, we moved to Ypsilanti, Michigan from Detroit, and I was 12 years old, and I had a best friend named Polly DeGrandchamp. She was my best friend, and she was white, and I was black, in case you, in case you guys didn't know who I was representing today. <laughs> and uh, Polly and I were best friends in middle school, and we did everything together. And we had the same classes, and our, both of our mothers went to Eastern Michigan University, and we stayed on campus housing for families. And I went over Polly's house, and she went over my house, and her mother was nice and cordial to me, and my mother was nice and cordial to her. And uh, she had an older sister who we completely ignored because, you know, she wasn't a part of our world. One day I went over Polly's house, and... Um, she and her sister, like siblings do. I had no siblings in the house, so I didn't understand the sibling thing. I still don't. <laughs> and they had gotten into an argument, and her sister Jennifer got really angry with her, and she said to me, she said to Polly, I hate you and your nigger friend. And I, I was in shock. I just was, I was just in shock. Um... First of all, I thought, I have nothing to do with this argument, you know. And secondly, I thought, is she, is she, talking, is she talking about me? And for a reason I did not understand, I felt hurt and angry. And um, that was the beginning of the wall building up around me that lasted for years. I am a recovering prejudiced person. So then I started with my reverse actions. That was the little brick wall that, that went around me for years. So the, let me lead into it with a, a general question, then we'll maybe a more specific ones after this. What do you see the cause? What, what is the root of that prejudice in, in people in general? What you experienced when you were younger? Mm-hmm. Maybe what you just described you became? What, what's the root of that? The devil. The enemy. Satan. Lucifer. Old Slewfoot. Whatever you want to call him. I really believe, as a Christian, that Satan is not racist at all. He is not prejudiced. He comes to kill, steal, and destroy all of us. And I believe that he is the root of prejudice. And if he can convince you, number one, that he doesn't exist, and if he can convince us that we are our enemies, for the Bible says that our fight really is not against flesh and blood, but it is a spiritual battle. Uh, we wrestle 
with principalities. I, I really believe once I became an actual active Christian that I discovered that that is the real root. The real root of prejudice is not you. It's not me. It's not the, you know, it's how we allow the enemy to speak to us. Well, I'm going to um, maybe, maybe speak as a congregation for a, a second, um, and, and I can't speak for everyone uh, in here, so I'll be careful, um, but I am, I'm white, in case you, yeah, I know. Um, so, Must be the uh, California tan <laughs> that yeah, continues yeah. to. <laughs> um, but um, I would say I have spent years of my life, um, my first youth pastor job was in South Compton, um, and uh, by far, in a hundred people, I would have been the only white person there, and it just it just didn't seem to be a bother for anyone. Um, I found myself in other situations later in life where um, uh, really unbeknownst to myself, developing this thought that i I would not say i 'm a racist at all i, I can 't see actions. Um, I would confess there 's thoughts that pop into my head that i don 't understand at times, um, but I would find myself believing. Because I'm not racist, I really don't have a responsibility in this whole racial tension issue that's going on. Um, do you run into that mindset? I mean, is that a common thing, as I'm confessing here? So there is a thing, two things. There's a, something called covert racism, which you can't see. Overt racism, which you can see. And it's hard for me to say what a person's mindset is. It's just really difficult. But I can tell you, just as an African-American, when I walk into an interview, there is a feeling that you get. There is something in the air between us that we can feel from each other. And sometimes it says... We're not really looking for people who look like you here. And I can't, how can you prove that? How can you, I can't say there's a, there's a feeling in the air. There's something that's coming across that says that your mindset may be, I'm not overtly turning her down. Uh, I allowed her to come to the interview. But then there's also this feeling between us in the air when I walked into my first district conference of our denomination. And it was the first time ever I had walked into any majority white atmosphere for worship. Because it was like, I got to work with white people. I got to see white people at the restaurant. I am certainly not going to church with white people. I know none of you ever think like that. I'm sorry. When I walked into that district conference, which took two years to, that my husband Nate and I were courting our denomination, and you were courting us, right? And there was this love in the air. It just was like this acceptance in the air. How can I prove that to you? It was something I felt. 
So mindset in terms of racial tension is actually an emotion. And it's covert. And it comes across through our spirits. Did I absolutely not answer that question? Or did it? Okay. I thought you did well. In fact, you, did, you said a couple things there. I'd like to, if you don't mind, I'd like to kind of split it up in maybe two questions there. Just speaking about like, like your jo- the job interview example you gave. So, so if I were to just say racial, racial bias today, like what does it look like? So racial bias is, what it looks like is, I went to an HBCU, if you ever heard that. It's called a historically black university. So one of the things they do is prepare us for interviews, just like any, any college, right? And you, you like my hair, right? You're called twists. They would say, take those twists out of your hair before you go a job interview and straighten your hair out. Because most interviewers are Anglo or white, and this is not going to get you the job. And I walk into my job, and I get defiant, and I'm not going to listen to that instructor because I'm young then, okay? I was talking about 20 aha years ago. And, I, and when you're young which I love young people because they have the power to defy racism and racial tension. And I'm walking in that interview and I am not going to take my twists or my braids out of my hair because this is, a diff- this is 1994. <clears throat> I, I'm mad at the young people. I see you laughing at me. It was the same thing as saying it's 2017. And I go in and they look at you and the first thing they say, Oh, I like your hair. We're not looking for that here. That's what covert racial bias looks like. It's very subtle. And I leave the interviewing, interview saying, I should have straightened my hair. But my hair isn't naturally straight. And if you ever have any African-American relatives, I'm, this is for free. if you ever have any African-American female relatives and you say, I'm going to take you to the hairdresser, please be ready for three hours to bolt this stuff straight. That was free. So that's what covert racial tension looks like. Um, The other overt racial tension is I come towards you, you turn around, you go the other way. That may be what we call overt racial tension. Or when I was sitting in, my husband was getting a colonoscopy, and I was sitting in the, I was sitting in the waiting area, and news was on. You should never have news on. Politics, religion, news. And this guy starts talking about black people. And these lazy black people and these black people this. And we're we're right there in Morrisville, North Carolina, in a colonoscopy clinic. And I'm just like, I'm just trying to get my husband's intestines looked at. I don't. 
And then you start thinking, are you supposed to say something about it? What am I supposed to do about this? I want to walk away and just say, yeah, okay. That kind of, that was, that was overt. And that was in 2010. Let me, let me add on that question there. You just said something. So it, if, uh, if, I, if I've gotten to the point where I would say, I would describe myself or we would say, hey, I'm, I'm, I think less racist to describe me, but maybe more racially insensitive at time. What are those subtle biases that I might be telling you, I, I'm not picking up on them? Will you, I mean, can you share with me how yeah. that works into your, your daily life sometimes? And I'm talking about bias that I experience. Um, I'm not talking about bias that I've given. Okay? So, um, I think we are, now, when I turn on television or I look at social media, I think we have become humanly insensitive. We've become insensitive regarding the human condition. So, we're gender insensitive. We are generationally insensitive. You know, where are elderly people? And do we care? I just think it's a condition that we have. And so racial insensitivity, um, it's just, it, it, it just emerges out of that. So I think we are just, have become insensitive, period, when we walk out of these, these doors. And it's up to us as the children of Christ. I keep going back to that because I really believe that's the only truth that changes us. It is the only truth that changed me. I would never think that I would be sitting here talking to you about this. If you knew my mindset before, but God can change anybody. So just, I'm not sitting in a seat of judgment because I have done that. And it, 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 yeah, it may be as a result of what was done to me, but what, it, what it, I heard this guy in the Bible says, um, do unto others as they do unto you. Is that, is that what he says? If they slap you, slap them back. I said, no. Love your enemies. Do good to those who do wrong to you. So that's, that's what that looks like. So you know, building bridges, we often in the church world talk about it takes relationships um, to build bridges with anyone. If I want somebody to come to know Jesus Christ and I build some relational bridge with them, some friendship bridge, I find so often that in building those bridges, even though my desire is to see them to come to know Jesus Christ— I get, I love those friendships. I love right. those relationships. So we know that in, in the church world. Um, but uh, we also know it takes more than friendliness to build bridges. A smile, a handshake. We do that pretty good here, but um, it takes even more than that. So, like, how would, uh, how would you say on the side of, of different races, how would you build into us that we would build deeper relationships? There's two things, and I'm just focusing mostly today on just the black-white interaction, mostly. There's, there's two things I want to say. One thing is, I want to 
set you free as I've been set free to feel as if you know can you tell the nervousness on my face I'm trying to look for a better word but I can't this pressure to integrate our churches there is this pressure that says we have to change our music Maybe change the way that we do things. Maybe be overly benevolent. You know that I have to do something for African American. This benevolence, we can feel that. Where I feel sorry for you. People really go by how you make them feel. So... That young man on there, he was really getting into him, inviting him to his church. His own biasness caused him, of course, to ask him. But he would still go to that church if that person was white who asked him because of how that person made them feel. And you don't have to change your music, and you don't have to change your culture, and you don't have to change who you are, all you have to do is change perhaps how you make people feel. Does that make sense to you? Mm -hmm. And I want to just kind of blow the oxygen out of that in order to develop authentic and organic relationships. There has to be an atmosphere for truth to transpire, which you've done today. So, you're going to come to my church, because I'm going to invite you guys to my church, right? And you're going to enjoy it. It's going to be too loud. We're going to be all over the place. Somebody might break out dancing over there. And you're going to really enjoy it. But when you get back in the car, you're going to say, okay, we're going to go back to Wendover Hills. (laughs) And that is okay. That doesn't mean that you're racist or you're prejudiced. It means that your cultural context is different from mine. That's it. And I think that's the first thing I want to say is I want to just lift off your shoulders. I know it's been on my shoulders because I'm called to this diversity thing, right? And so I'm like, do we need to sing, um, you know, certain songs? And I'm giving it to my musician. Because you know music is big in the black church. That's a stereotype and it's true. (laughs) And uh, I'll give it to my musician, right? Because my cultural context is what people might call, you know, my father was a musician, so I like all kinds of music. And so I'll give them this song, you know, that I want them to sing, you know. um, And they'll say, oh, She's giving us one of those white songs again. We're going to need to, Pastor, we're going to change it. Okay, fine. And that's okay. So I just, that's the first thing. The second thing um, to end it, I'm a preacher, so I've got an ending. And I'm an African-American preacher, so we have three endings. I'm sorry. I'm just doing all kinds of stereotypes. Okay. So there's this military strategy developed by Colonel John Boyd that my husband preaches about, and it's called OODA, O-O-D-A. 
And the military strategy is to first observe, which we've all done. We've observed that there's racial tension. We've observed that there's racism. I observed that how I was treated. That's the first thing you do. But the second part of the strategy is to orientate. Learn. That's what you're doing today. You learn about the situation. You, you orientate yourself to it. And that's what you guys are doing today. The third part of the strategy is decision. I'm a pastor. I got to give you four points. So the third part of it is decision. What am I going to decide to do with what I've observed and what I've orientated myself to? I decided when I suffered racism in Xenia, Ohio, and with Jennifer in Ypsilanti, and just countless other times. And I had built all of these walls against me. Heck, I even joined the African Methodist Episcopal Church because it was African Methodist Episcopal. And at some point, I had to decide if I was going to go the road of bitterness or better. And I decided to go the road of better. And the third thing, which I feel I'm doing in my life today, is to act. O-O-D-A, act. So how can you create an atmosphere for organic relationships to emerge? Here are some practical things. Connect with a church different from you. Connect with some people different from you. Soccer, football, basketball, um, small groups, Bible study groups, where, where different people are there, and do life together. Do life together. And then it's not forced. You know, you know this week we're going to sing Kurt Carr. All the worship leaders will probably know what I'm saying. And, and we're going to get some black people because we're going to have the Kurt Carr music. And we're going to, whatever it is that we put ourselves under tremendous pressure. And when we do that, things can't happen organically, meaning just out of us being in relationship, provide atmospheres and opportunities to teach each other how to love one another. I decided that I was going to dedicate my life to Jesus Christ, to pastoring, and to teach white people how to love me and to learn, to let white people teach me how to love them. And we do that through creating opportunities. That's, that's the intentional part. Like, I'm going to intentionally invite Nicole to this. And from there, we develop relationships. And I'm not going to... I mean, and, 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 and we're not walking on eggshells. Once you develop relationships, you're not doing the eggshell walk. Because then that's not authentic. If I have to change who I am, like, I, I say ain't. 
And I was so glad when I moved to the South because black and white people say ain't. (laughs) So we can be who we are, provide atmospheres, do a small group with some people that's different from you, engage with the church, not not giving to a church. We're going to go sponsor a church. We're going to go sponsor, you know, a a kid from Zimbabwe, but literally do life together because we are equal in God's sight. And I don't expect anything from you but love because at the end of the day, I don't know what to do with my 10-year-old son, and some of you don't either. And at the end of the day, I was a perfect mother before I had kids. And I was never going to tell my kid to shut up. And I do. And some of you do too. At the end of the day, we still struggle with life. And if we create atmospheres that we can journey in life together, then the true reconciliation of Christ will happen within us. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, are you a little fired up? Oh, yeah. This has been, I I think I could just kind of stay up here and we could keep going, but. um, No, you can't. You're a pastor. You are just itching. (laughs) Didn't he do good listening to me? No, I, I don't know what that clap meant right there. Oh, man. So, hey, last week we, we said uh, in a practical point, we, we challenged and Patty brought it up, ethnically speaking, do you run from the accent or do you run to the accent? And, and uh, um, do you run from a different color skin or do you embrace that? And, and uh, Nicole's talking about just building those bridges and those connections or those relationships in any fashion, any form, work, maybe, maybe within your family, anywhere, hobbies, wherever you have connections with people. And, uh, and so uh, I think these practical uh, are outstanding for us this week. Hey, I want to do for you before uh, we end here, uh, I want to invite my, uh, my friend Ray up here, uh, and we're just going to pray over you and your church, especially Victories of Faith is the church. Uh, her husband is preaching uh, down there today, so there are parts. So Ray, do you mind coming up and just praying over Pastor Nicole and for Victories of Faith as well as they minister uh, down in Kannapolis? Father, I just thank you for this opportunity uh, that we had to, to just learn more um, about each other, to learn more about your love, about your plan for us, Lord. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord. We do have that responsibility, and you required of us, Lord, to, to reach out in love. And I'm so thankful today that we had this opportunity, Lord. I just pray that you would bless um, their church. Um, and I pray that you would just anoint her ministry and her husband's ministry, Lord, and let it flourish, and let us be a part of it, Lord, in any way we can. Show us, Lord, and uh, we'll trust you, and we'll follow you. We'll follow your lead, Lord. Thank you again for this wonderful service we had and for these words of truth, Lord. I'm so thankful for, her, for the spirit that was here today. I'm so thankful that this was not another attempt to make me feel guilty, Lord, but it was it was just beautiful and peaceful and kind and gentle and loving like you are, Father. And so we just pray your blessing upon us, Lord, as we go. Let us take that action word, Lord. Let us make decisions and do the action. And you'll get the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. We you thank Pastor Nicole for coming today.
Well, this is what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite our ushers to go ahead and to come up. And if you take our tithes and offerings, go ahead. And, and I'm going to give you uh, just building updates and where it begins this week. And then in light of our time, I'm going to go ahead and dismiss you. But a praise team is going to, going to play us one more as we're going out. But I'm going to go ahead and dismiss you to grab your kids so, um, so we don't have teachers all over us in a few minutes. Uh, so you guys go ahead and take up the offering. It uh, would be great. If you didn't come prepared to give, uh, windoverhills.org. Feel free to go that route uh, as well. So, hey, uh, building update. Uh, this week, uh, on Tuesday, our surveyor will be there. He'll take a couple days to do the surveying, and they're going to move, uh, actually, excavation equipment on the property early. So, like, if you, I mean, you're just so itching to get out there in your chair and just sit and watch. Um, it's there this week. Uh, you can do that. Um, uh, machine will come. So, after a couple days of surveying, then you'll actually see some some movement out there, and the, those erosion control units was just kind of the, the little pond they dig out to catch all of our dirt and water during construction. Uh, that'll be going on this week as well. As soon as that ends, then you'll see the full site being cleared and, and being rolling. So over the next two weeks, I uh, should see a lot of movement out there uh, on the site. Somebody actually told me uh, this week, here in our church, been in our church for a while, yeah, they said, I, you know, I haven't been out there to see the property. And I, what? So um, if you have not been, first I'll repent for what I said about that person. And uh, then I will say, get out there and check out uh, what it looks like now, because in a couple of weeks it'll look very, very different. And uh, I'd love for you to see what it looks like right now before it gets there. So sound good? All right. Hey, it's so good to have you guys this week. Next week we'll continue this series, but I'm going to go ahead and dismiss you. Have a blessed Sunday afternoon, and we'll see you later in the week. Anytime my heart turns from darkness